That's a core value. Um, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. By the way, uh, your papers are on the table out there. Uh, I'm sorry, I should have put them a little bit closer. If you guys want to um, send a representative. Yeah, right. I noticed you got yours, man. Yeah, if you want to look around and grab one of those, you can follow along and fill in some stuff. Uh, I did not put today's date on it. I'm, a good, I'm not a good student. I used to tell kids, you always put the date on every time. I took points off if the date wasn't on a piece of paper. I did. That's points off. Because I don't want to be guessing what day you did this or your name. It was always fun when I got a paper with no date or no name. That was classic. (laughs) No date, no name. I don't even know who you are. You might not even be in my class. So sorry about that. Hey, can we thank... the Valdezes for the work, just leading us in worship tonight. Would you give them a hand? They come early. They prepare. They sing songs. Training up that young fella in the ways of the Lord. I wonder if he goes to school and they say, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to lead worship at my church. What are you doing? So Luke chapter 14, it is in your notes. You might want to look in your Bible as well. To be a disciple, we're continuing in our series on discipleship. Someone said to me, you need to be teaching this on Sunday. I said, you know what? You're right. But we have a select group on Wednesday night, so they're the privileged ones as we learn together what it means to be a disciple. Uh, In a day without clocks, when an event, a big event, like a wedding, um, um, a dinner, like a big dinner, a king or a magistrate or somebody would do it, uh, they would send their heralds out to tell everybody when the day was. But they wouldn't tell them the time, so you knew on that day, don't plan anything. Because the king or, uh, you know, someone who's uh, uh, got some influence has invited me to a wedding or to a banquet. And so you just kept that day open. And then sometime during that day, they would tell you what day, uh, what time. And and then you'd make your way there. So that's the backdrop of Luke chapter chapter 14. Um, It says in verse 16. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guest, come, the banquet is ready. Somebody else pick up uh, verse 18 through 20. Verse 21 and 22, someone else? And the last two verses, someone else, please? Okay, there's um, many meanings behind this particular parable. And whenever you read a parable, you have to catch the context. 
So you have to read before and read after to try to get a little bit more insight into what Jesus is saying. For our particular purposes, though, we're talking about discipleship. Um, Now, notice that this man has prepared a great feast, and he sent out many invitations. Now, um, today, when you send out an invitation to a wedding, um, uh, and, you know, you and, and people RSVP so that you know how many people will come, and, and there might be some things that happen, you know, where, where uh, people lose the RSVP or some people might forget about it or... You know, when, when when I got married, you know, we wanted everyone to we did we just wanted everyone to be there, everyone, and 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 you know, it seemed like everybody showed up too, and um, uh, but that was cool, you know, and and but in this culture, when you get an invitation to something like this, now you have to think about Middle Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture, and we've lost this, and I wish we had more of this. Is such that if a stranger came into town. It was the responsibility of the people of the town to take that stranger in. Uh, Jesus said, I was a stranger and you took me in, right? That's the culture. Uh, if if uh, Abraham has two, uh, he didn't know, I think it was two, it was three, uh, three uh, angels. Um, one of them, I believe, was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And they come to the tent and he immediately prepares a meal. Why? Because that's the culture. Uh, you, you, you hospitality was everything because literally your honor was at stake when someone came to visit or stranger visited or someone came from a distant land. And so this was a big deal. Now, to send an invitation to someone, and you have to understand that whoever sent this invitation had influence because it was a big banquet, a great feast. And he sent out many invitations. He had money. He was a man of influence. And so culturally, you would not say no to this man, you, not, not just for the, the fact that he was a man of influence, but also because, because he had prepared this. And culturally, that's what you did. You just went. And so uh, and here in this parable, we see that there are those who make excuses for not coming. And so the first two can't come because of material things. Now, we're talking about discipleship. So one says... I just bought a field, and I need to inspect it. What's the question that you might ask if someone, you invited someone to something, and they said, you know, we just bought uh, uh, a field or some land, and I have to go look at it. What would you say to that person? Did you look at it before you bought it? You might say that. And besides that, it'll still be there after the, 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 the little festival. Right? Okay, now, or another one says, I have five pair of oxen uh, that, that I, I've just bought, and I want to try them out. What might you ask that person? Didn't you try them out before you bought them? Did, yeah, did, yeah, yeah, you might say that. Did you not hear what I said to the other brother who just, just told me he couldn't make it? Even better. Why repeat myself? You know, just listen up. Okay, um, so these, these are men who are preoccupied with the things of this world, the things of life. Um, the context is the great king, God, has invited people to his banquet in heaven. And there are those who will be too busy to respond to that invitation. So the first one, it's because of 
uh, uh, the field. The other one, it's because of the oxen. Material things. Uh, they're chasing after stuff, and they really don't have the time to be wasted with this man. Now, the third excuse, this man puts his family before God. This man puts his family before God because he says, I ha- now have a wife, so I can't come. Why? What? What? <laughs> what might you? And don't you say that you'd be with your wife before you married her. No, don't you say that. Uh, but uh, what, what you, you might say, bring your wife along. I mean, right? Uh, but, but he's, th- this man represents someone who places his family in this particular case, his wife before God. And in retrospect, and I, put, I think this is in your notes, the best thing a man can do for his family is to show them what it looks like to live for God first. Hear me, period. Doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, don't, doesn't matter what you're able to provide or not able to provide. The best thing that a man can do for his family, the number one thing that a man can do for his family is show them what it looks like to live for God first. Now, I know as men, we think, oh, no, we got to provide. Of course, you have, that, that, that's not even an option. Well, we got to be there emotionally, of course. Well, we have to discipline our children in the, in, the, in the admonition of the Lord. Well, of course, that goes without saying. But those aren't the greatest things. The greatest things that our children need is the example of us following Jesus first, more than anything else. It's true. It's true. Look at where we are in our society, okay? Let me just say this. Poverty doesn't create crime. Pa- uh, 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 crime is not the result of poverty. It's not. That's a lie. Because here's the thing. There have always been poor people. During the Great Depression, I don't know how much crime there was. There might not have been that much. My mother was a World War II survivor, okay, in Germany, running for her life from planes or dropping bombs. They were poor. They did not commit crimes. Because crime, criminal activity has nothing to do with socioeconomics, but it has everything to do with the condition of the heart. Secondly, a man needs to put God first. Secondly, a man needs to put his wife first. I didn't say girlfriend. Wife. A man needs to put his wife after God, after God, not before God, after God. The most important thing that a wife needs is to know that her husband places God first. That's the most important thing she needs. The kids, if you want to show your young men and your daughters, your sons and daughters, what to expect when they will one day get married, love your wife, but love God more. See, because children need to know that they're not first. They, they expect to be first. That's why they scream and shout and, and, and we have the terrific twos and all of that because they believe they're first. But as they get a little bit older... They have to learn that the world doesn't revolve around them. 
and they're not first. And within the family context, we err when we place our kids before our marriage relationship and even before God. We err when we do that because it sets a bad precedence. Kids need to know they're not first. And they need to know they're not second. They need to know they're third. But that's okay because that's the proper hierarchy. God, spouse, kids, come third, uh, wife, well, uh, husband, wife, and then kids. After that, then maybe the rest of family, then maybe job or ministry. Those two could, can interrelate. We err when we make ministry first. When we say, no, no, it's all about serving God. It's all about the ministry. There are families that have absolutely imploded because someone in that family made ministry first. When in scripturally, you're not even qualified to be an elder in the church if your family's not together. You're out of order. And of course, we as men, and I'm speaking to men, but women as well, we get much of our identity by our job and by what we do. And that's kind of okay. But when that job becomes the number one thing in our life, we're out of order. It takes precedence over how many families have been sacrificed at the altar of opportunity at the workplace. This man says, I just got married. Can't make it. Their excuses are only an attempt to hide the fact that they really don't want to come. That's it. That's what an excuse is. Morgan said this, back of an excuse is a lack of desire. They didn't want to come. You've had that, right? You've invited someone to something and they, well, yeah, I got to do this. And it's like, and you maybe thought, no, you don't. Hey, man, if you don't want to go, just tell me, right? We've probably all done that. Just tell, make some excuse. Tell them. And really, it's because of desire. Now, remember, this is a kingdom principle. So God is holding a banquet in heaven. He sends invitations out to Israel. Israel rejects him. So he says, go out to the highways, the byways, go out to the, the highways and the hedges, go out to anyone, go to the poor, go to the cripple, go to the... And those who were invited don't want to come, invite everybody else. Because Jesus went first to the Jew. The gospel went first to the Jews. And they were, as a nation, rejected Christ. So it came to the Gentiles. That's us. doesn't mean that he doesn't want them. It just means that initially he was rejected by them to this day. You want to get in an argument? Tell someone that Jesus is Messiah who's Jewish. And there are many who do believe, but there are many more who don't. Okay. There's no rational reason why someone would not want to be a part of the feast. They just don't want to do it. And remember, culturally, this is the worst thing you can do. It's the worst thing you can do. And so to be a disciple, first and foremost, to be a disciple, you must respond to his invitation. Jesus said, whosoever believeth in me will not perish. There's a response that we have to, to we, we have a part to play, and that's to respond to the message. He has done all the work for us. The banquet is already prepared. It's all laid out, but we must respond to that invitation. Now, um, is that all that we need to do? Nope. 
And there are many who believe, hey, when I was nine years old, I gave my life to Jesus. I'm good. I don't have to do anything else. Well, that's partially true if you really did give your life to Jesus. But if you did, then he calls you to go on beyond that, to bear fruit. So Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 27 says, A large crowd was following. Everybody say, large crowd. Hey, man, you know what? Everybody was following Jesus. Jesus was the new man on campus. Everybody wanted to follow him. There were miracles, people getting fed. That, that, that bread and that fish was the best bread and fish we ever had. He fed 5,000 people plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. And let me tell you, it was the best. You know that fish was good. People probably try to box it up and sell it the next day. Yeah, see a Galilee fish fry. Um, so a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison, your father, your mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Wait, didn't we just say about the importance of wife and children and, and, and family? Didn't we just say that? So question number one. Who is Jesus talking to here? Understand this. Who is he talking to? What does it say? Who is he talking to? A large crowd. What kind of people followed him? All kinds of people. Just regular people. Maybe some religious leaders. Maybe not. This is... This is Jesus going out to a park and talking to a crowd of people. Dignitaries? No, maybe, maybe not. It's a large crowd. There's no telling who's in the crowd. This is, this is Jesus just speaking, and these are just people following him. Okay? What's he talking about? What's he talking about? <clears throat> Commitment, what does it say? Yep. Verse 26. He's talking about discipleship. If you want to be my disciple. So what are the conditions he lays down for being a disciple? You can list them. I think I left one blank on purpose. But um, uh, what are the conditions he lays down? Okay, number one, hate everyone else by comparison. And you're, you're, I, I use the, the New Living Translation because it gives it a little more definition. Because, But he basically says you must hate your father and hate your mother. And there are people who go, see, Jesus, priest, we seem to hate our what? That's Okay, that's ridiculous, okay? That would violate the law of God to honor your mother and father. But it's an idiom or a, another word or a way to say a preference. So you should, you should prefer Jesus so much that in comparison to those who are closest to you, it's like you hate them. It's also called hyperbole, which means you exaggerate a point to make it really clear, right? I mean, this is, this is like, okay, this is a culture where family meant everything. Get it? Okay. When I was in Israel, I asked a question of our guide. I say, why do I not see many homeless people? There, there's just not many on the streets. He goes, because family will not let them go on the streets. I thought, Whoa. It's family's responsibility to take care of them. I thought, okay, family is everything. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, by comparison, you're to hate your father and your mother. And then he says, even your own life. Hate everyone else by comparison in the sense of indifference or, 
a relative disregard for them in comparison towards your attitude towards God. So he's saying, hate everyone else by comparison. And then he says, even your own life. How do you hate your own life? What does that mean? How does, I mean, how can you hate your own life? And then he says, or else you can't be my disciple. Napoleon understood the principle that Jesus is talking about when he says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did he, did, did, did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love and this hour, millions of men would die for him. That's what Napoleon said about Jesus. To hate even your own life. Then he says, carry your own cross. You've heard the expression, man, my job is my cross to bear. Man, my cross is my wife. Or my husband. No. Man, my cross and my children. Okay, the cross part is right, but that's not your cross. And that's certainly not what Jesus meant. He says in verse 27, whoever does not persevere and carry his own cross. So the one carrying a cross essentially walked down death row to their place of execution. They knew there was no turning back. And it was a total, complete commitment with your life. You knew your life didn't belong to you anymore when you were carrying your cross. Okay? This is total, someone said, total commitment. And here's, Jesus gave himself for us totally, and his expectation is that we would give ourselves to him totally. You understand that. There are things in your life that you gave yourself totally to. You understand that. You know what that means. 100% commitment. You know that. And we underestimate the demands of Jesus when we preach the gospel to others. We can give them the impression that coming to Jesus is, is believing in some certain facts instead of yielding a life. See, see, we, we, can, we, can, we do a, a, a disservice when we tell people, if you, if you believe this, 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 and this, you're in... But we don't also say it will cost you your life and you must yield your life too. That, that's, that's the other part of it. Uh, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Else you cannot be my disciple. That's what a disciple does. He follows the rabbi. He follows the teacher. He follows the leader. So what does it mean to hate your own life? What does that mean? What do you think? In the context of what we're talking about, what does it mean to hate your own life? It certainly doesn't mean hate yourself. (laughs) It's not what it means. What's that? Put Jesus before yourself. What else?
So you could look at your old life as like you hate that, but now there's a new life. You could look at it that way in comparison to hate yourself. doesn't mean beat yourself up and walk around and be miserable in comparison to what you feel about your life in Christ. It's like you hate yourself. See, first he talks about family members, then he talks about you. Man, hey, let me ask a question. Don't answer. Is this, is this cost too high? I mean, who signs up for this? In anything else in life, we do it all the time. You ever been in the military? You understand this. The military will tell you, you hate your life. Why? Because your life isn't yours anymore. It's ours. If the Marine Corps wanted you to have a wife, we would have issued you, issued you one, son. Get on back out there. We prayed Sunday, mor- uh, Sunday afternoon. Kim's son, Joshua, going off to off the coast of Yemen in a battleship. A carrier or a battleship? You think it's a carrier? Seven months, gone. In a dangerous place. See, we, 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 get, we, we, we don't get it, but we get it because we do it all the time, right? It's a high cost. So if you want to be a disciple, you must place him first, carry your own cross, and follow him. And the cross is the way of suffering. That means there will be seasons of suffering in our life, even suffering for the gospel's sake. There are things you have to give up. There are things that you have to reprioritize. You mentioned your dreams and your visions and your, your goals and all of that to, to bring it into the, the will of the Lord. All right, let's move on. Luke chapter 14, verse 28 through 33. Do you guys have that on your notes? All right, I'll start the first verse. For which of you wishing to build a farm building does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see whether he has sufficient means to finish it? Someone else read 29 and 30, please. Someone else, verse 31. And then 32 and 33. Okay, so um, these men are involved in life. Um, What are they supposed to be doing? What does Jesus say that they should do? One of them is building a building, and he says, you know, before you start building that building, sit down and make sure you have enough money to finish it, (laughs) right? You get halfway through, and it'll be like the recession in Las Vegas two years ago. There's a whole bunch of buildings that were half built. And because they just assumed the money would be there, and it dried up. 
That's one situation. The other situation is king is about to go to war in conflict. And he says, first sit down and take some counsel about whether with 10,000 you can defeat the, the army coming. You're outnumbered two to one. And so calculate the cost to finish in advance, he says to one man. Calculate the cost to finish in advance. The spiritual parallel is calculate the cost to finish in Jesus in advance, knowing it's going to cost you so when it comes you won't be surprised. Know that there are going to be times where the Holy Spirit is going to tell you no when everybody else says yes. Know there are going to be times where the Holy Spirit tells you yes when everybody else says no. You have to calculate that now. You have to think, well, before I do this, I need to make sure that I will, that I will remain faithful to the end. I, 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 by God's grace, not by my own strength, but by His grace. And then 10,000 men fighting 20,000, consider, get counsel. If not, then go make peace with that king. Okay, so, so you have an option here. Go, you know, to, to go ahead and fight or get some counsel from some other leaders. And if you're not going to be able to do it, then begin, go make peace with that king. Why? Because with the building, you may not finish if you don't count the cost. And it won't be an easy battle, the Lord is saying, so count the cost because you might lose the battle. Here's the thing. This is not a light decision. That's what we need to communicate to people. Following Jesus is not a light decision. You don't enter into it lightly. If you enter into it lightly, you're probably not entering into it. So you don't halfway join the army. <laughs> you don't say, well, you know, I signed. I'm going to give it a few months and see how it goes. You're out the door already. You don't get half married. Do you solemnly swear? Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. Till death. Wait a second. I'm just trying out, trying this out right here. I, I'm not sure if I'm solemnly swearing till death. I mean, I don't, I don't know about all that. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm gonna give it a shot. But uh, you know, you, you talking about commitment here till death? Wait a minute. Now we didn't talk about that. I, I just, I just kind of. You know, things happen. People change. You know, I'm, uh, you know, man, you don't know. Listen, you don't enter into a marriage like that. That would be a joke. That would be like Bozo the Clown might as well be marrying you, you know, in a circus. Circus, circus, wedding chapel. It's not a light decision. These things. It's not a light decision to join the military during wartime. <laughs> you know, when I played basketball at UNLV, they had the selective service. It wasn't the draft, but they were gearing up for the draft. Man, we were scared to death. Like, man, you ain't going to call me to war, are you? We, we, we'll go and do basketball camps. We can't fight, you know. We're too tall to be in a battlefield. We'll be the first ones taken out. <laughs> I committed to UNLV. I didn't commit to the Army. Oh, man, half of the brothers filled it out, them forms. The other half didn't. Brothers from the big city was like, man, I ain't feeling that out, man. They can do what they want. <laughs> I said, oh, come on, man. I can't remember if I filled mine out or not. I really don't recall. <laughs> but I understand commitment because my dad did 21 years. I know what it's like to go to the airport and say goodbye and not see him for a year, not knowing if he's going to come back or not. I know that. I mean, I sort of knew it. 
because I was a child at the time. But, all right, it's not a light decision. Now, David Guzik, uh, a Christian pa- a pastor, said this. It, it is as if we have an apartment and give the ownership of the apartment to Jesus. We don't have to remodel the apartment before we give it to Jesus. But once we do, he comes in and starts tearing down walls and fixing up things. Being a disciple means that you help Jesus in that work instead of resisting it or changing things back to the old way. <laughs> Here you go, Lord. Here's the keys. Oh, that wall's got to go. We're going to rearrange this, and that's definitely, we're throwing that out and bringing a whole bunch of new stuff in over here. You'd be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, not resisting. Verse 33 is a term of conclusion. It says, so then, any of you who does not forsake, renounce, surrender, claim to give up, say goodbye to all that he has cannot be my disciple. Did we read 32 and 33? Okay. Uh, so, so that's the term of, this is the conclusion, at least for this part of discipleship. Any of you who does not forsake, renounce, surrender, claim to give up, say aloha to all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay. Okay. You got that. All that you have. Now let's wrap it up. You have to, he says, give up, be willing to give up any and everything. You have to be willing, and it literally means say goodbye to. And and what that means is be willing to hold everything with an open hand. Listen, everything. That is so hard because what do we do? That's what we do. Our money, uh, our relationships, Uh, our stuff. Our pride. Our bitterness. I'm holding on to that because I got a right to be bitter. Our anger. We hold on to these things. Even those things we have to be willing to let go of. That's what discipleship is. Willing to let it go if need be in order to follow Jesus. Okay, verse 34 and 35, he says, salt is good. Now, he's not talking about overdosing on salt. Some people put salt on everything. They put salt on salt. Some people salt their food before they even taste it. They go to a restaurant. Yeah, I'm going to like this. How did you know it needed salt? That's just what I do. Okay, man. That's not what he means. Now, you can tell, the Bible says salt is good, and how's your blood pressure doing, okay? Salt is good. Remember, salt was more than just flavoring. It was a preservative as well. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. If salt has lost its flavor, what good is it? No good at all. Salt that loses its saltiness can't be of use by Jesus. Salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt. A Christian is only useful when he has the nature of Christ. Now let's wrap it up in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. How did, the, how did the people react to these demands? How did they react? This is cool. 
Who's he talking to? People. Sinners? Yep. How do they respond when they hear the truth of the gospel message? It says that all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Did you get that? Do you know what Jesus just told them about discipleship? These are not church folk. These are people out in the highways and the byways. Tax collectors and sinners are listening to everything Jesus. He tells them what the cost of discipleship is in chapter 15, verse 1, says they all gathered to him to hear, to listen to him. Oh, no, you can't say that. You can't preach that. You can't talk about hell. You can't talk about the cost of discipleship because people today don't want to hear that, really. Maybe, maybe not. They respond. They don't reject. This stern gospel, some would say, wasn't, was, was not inconsistent with Jesus' love. It was the result of his love. Sinners and outcasts saw the love prompting the bold call to discipleship, and they responded. People will respond to a challenging gospel if it's spoken in love in the context of relationship. That's called telling the truth in love. If you speak the truth in love, in the context of a relationship, people will hear you. But it takes time to get to that place of trust. But let's not soften the demands of the gospel or the demands of discipleship. Let's not soften it. Let's just let's not tell people just believe in Jesus Christ and all your wildest dreams will come true. Let's not let's not say that. You know, all you need to do is believe. All you need to do is believe. That's true. But there's another side to it. If you want to be a disciple, it's beyond belief. But when we speak the truth, let's speak it in love. And one of the ways that we speak it in love is by being a disciple, by living it. Man, that's hard, huh? But it's good. It's hard, but it's good. Because at the end of our lives, don't we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the place of your rest. Don't we want to hear that? Don't we want to see Jesus face to face and have no regrets? No regrets. Don't we want to be poured out like Paul the Apostle as a drink offering? When that time came, it's like, you know what, Jesus, I'm done here on earth. Paul poured himself out so much so, Jesus said, it's time for you to come up here because you're done. He said, I've run the race. I finished the course. Before me lies a crown of righteousness or a crown of life, not just for me, but everyone else who believes in his coming. Mm. Discipleship, huh? Woo! There were times when Jesus said things and people turned and walked away. Jesus looked at Peter once and said, are you going to go too? Peter said, Master, where are we going to go? We left everything to follow you. Go back to what? That's discipleship. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we just um, uh, we have to understand that we cannot do this without you. That it's more than just, I think I can, I hope I can, and I sure wish I could. It's not that. It is us yielding to you, your power flowing through us, and causing us to live this life that cannot be lived any other way. So, Lord, strengthen our faith, help our weakness. 
cause us to be lights in a place of darkness. And you know what? We want to be salty, Lord. We don't want to be like a, a clump of nothing. I mean, really, what point? There's no point to salt without salt, the flavor. We don't want to lose our flavor. We don't want to lose our, our, our ability to preserve. Truth is preserved. If we speak truth, it'll be preserved as salt. So, Lord, um, help us to receive this and to get what you have for us out of it. And I just thank you for these folks being here tonight. Would you walk with us as we leave? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Have a great...